This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. So we're in a different passage than we've been in. We're in Judges uh, chapter 7. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we will uh, we'll look at this uh, fascinating passage. I can't predict it'll be a fascinating sermon, but I can guarantee you it's a fascinating passage. So may the two come together. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, want to express our love to you today. We are grateful for all that you have done for us. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful that we have a church family to join together with today. And uh, we're grateful for your word, that you speak to us perfectly, authoritatively, uh, graciously uh, through your scripture. So we want to hear today what you have for us. And God, as this, uh, as this message in this series is uh, to, we pray it will fashion us as a people, that it will, I pray that what we talk about today would be something you'd work deeper into our DNA uh, as a body, as a church body, Lord. And uh, so please do that. God, I pray that you give me strength and uh, wisdom and uh, to be able to open this passage in a way that will really feed the flock and encourage your people here today, Lord. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 7. Um, before we make a few comments before we get in, the, the, uh, before we get into the text, the biggest uh, physical project, if I could say it that way, the biggest physical project before us as a church uh, is our opportunity to build uh, facility over on Frisco Square. If you're new here, you may not know that, but we are uh, in a process of preparing to build a facility over in Frisco Square. Now, that's not the biggest project in front of us. The biggest project in front of us as a people is to be conformed to the image of Christ by his grace, to individually become more and more like Jesus by his power, uh, and as a people, to be conformed together as a church family that more represents the, the person of Christ, that we look more and more like him. So that's our, that's our biggest project by God's grace. I say it's our project. It's his project to work in us, and we uh, cooperate with him in that. But our biggest physical project, our biggest opportunity, humanly speaking, physically, for ministry is this plot of donated land sitting over uh, in Frisco Square that we are saving money and preparing to build over there. So last year, about this time, uh, this is review if you've been a part of the church, this is uh, maybe new for you, but about this time last year, we did a series that we called Prepare for the Square rhymes. Um, and uh, so we did this, it was a little series which was uh, preparing for what was in front of us. So we had a number of sermons where we laid out vision for God's mission and God's calling to us as a church. And then we, we showed a drawing that some folks have been working hard on and as preparation for a building. So we kind of did that. We did a couple of informational meetings to answer a whole lot of questions about it. And uh, we had prayer meetings. And so we did a lot of, lot of things to focus. And it culminated at the end of that series 
communities uh, with an offering, an opportunity to invest our finances uh, towards this project and uh, to make a pledge of what we would, by God's grace, uh, hope to give by faith over the next year. Well, that's coming to an end. That pledge period where folks, you know, said we'd like to give this much to the uh, to fund the project. That's coming to a close at the end of this month. Uh, that that period at the end of end of October. Well, a lot has happened since then. Um, a lot has happened. People gave generously and sacrificially. There was broad participation in the project. Um, the, the project is further along in terms of its drawings and, and that kind of stuff. The, the building has been on, this building's been on the market for a while and, um, we don't have a buyer. We had a couple showings this week, though. So people are looking at this building. So that's moving along. And we are on the verge of, uh, not any hour, but maybe any day, uh, being able to, uh, uh, announce a date in the near future to do a groundbreaking on roads. We have to put in a couple roads before we can build a building. So we have to do that first. So we're close to breaking ground on the project, at least with regard to putting in some roads. So with all that, what we're doing is we're doing a sort of a refocus along these lines uh, this year. And uh, we'll do something similar. So we're preaching as I'm preaching a series here that's not in Acts. And we will have an informational uh, meeting coming up on the building, a members meeting. Well, not just members, anybody can come. An informational meeting, and we will culminate in November uh, with another opportunity to invest for the, for the coming year and, and hopefully see some uh, getting that much closer to being able to build. So we're doing that again. We're not calling this series Prepare for the Square. Calling this series Weakness. That's not a joke. I'm calling this series Weakness. Now, I, I know that that doesn't bring an adrenaline rush to your soul. I, I mean, th- these are sometimes called, I, I don't like these phrases, but these are called like a capital campaign or something. Uh, you know, so uh, a, a, a series to uh, cast vision and then give people an opportunity to invest in the building of the building. So that's where we are. And there are actually consultants that help churches do that. We don't have one, not necessarily opposed to them, but we, we didn't do that. But I assure you, no consultant would come in and say, uh, pitch this idea. Here's a great idea. You want to build? You want to reach the city? Okay, how about this? Weakness. You know, no one's, it's, it's not really perhaps the most appealing title for a series. Usually, there's something kind of robust. There's like a lot of testosterone in the name. So usually it's like we're going to build Breakthrough 2013. You know, that's usually something like that. Whoa, yeah, Breakthrough 2013. Yeah, count me in. That's awesome. It's usually something like that or Domination through donation, you know, something like that. Yes, we're taking the city, uh, you know, invest, we're taking the city. Or sometimes I've heard some that are kind of ethereal and a, a little bit philosophical, like possess, possessing our tomorrows today. And you go, yeah, wait, what does that mean? What are we possessing our... Yeah. But I don't know. I guess we're doing that. I saw a drawing in the lobby, so we're possessing our tomorrows today. So usually it's something like that. It's never weakness. It's never weakness... Um, but in fact, that's what I'm praying God will grip our hearts with, a sense of weakness. The full title is Weakness, God's Power Through Our Frailty. God's Power Through Our Frailty. Uh, it's a significant theme throughout Scripture. I've been studying this theme for a little bit, and throughout Scripture you see this idea that God desires to work through human weakness. In fact, God designs circumstances to force uh, people who perceive themselves as strong to be weak 
so that they see their need of him. This is how God actually works in the Bible, is that God brings human weakness to display his power. And today, we're going to look at that theme in Judges 7. So I'm going to kind of go flannel board Sunday school lesson on you here uh, and tell you the story of Gideon. Um, And that's who we are going to look at today. I want to look at chapter 7. We're going to study chapter 7, but we're introduced to Gideon in chapter 6. So I've got to tell you what happens in chapter 6. Then I'm going to read chapter 7 a section at a time and and, uh, apply it. So we're going to do that. So it's the book of Judges. Here's the book of Judges in 30 seconds. Uh, The book of Judges is a time in Israel's history before they had a king. And uh, it, it kind of describes life in Israel at that time. Every man did what is right in his own eyes. That's the last verse of the book. And so that was kind of the series, they, the, the world they lived in. And here's what happened. God had delivered his people out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land. And here's what they do. They get content. Uh, they get secure. They get happy. They start worshiping idols. They forget about God. They, they turn their back on the God who delivered them and worship idols. So God sends in another nation usually, or s- some means to get their attention. So another nation comes in, takes over. Then the people of God remember God. They don't like the oppression they're under. They cry out to God in desperation. And then God raises up an individual, uh, usually a man. There's a woman as well in here who's, a, who's called a judge. And it's not just somebody on a bench, but it's really more of a military deliverer. Someone who comes in and really kind of functions more like a general in our world than a, than a judge on a bench. And, but he raises up someone called a judge, and they deliver God's people. God's people turn back to God and say, yes, you're the one who delivered us, and we see that in this deliverer. Now, these deliverers are oftentimes... Uh, not people we'd want to emulate. They're not like more, these aren't moral lessons. As the book goes on, the deliverers get worse and worse. The last one's the best known felt board Sunday school guy, and that's Samson. And he's an absolute scoundrel. He's a mess. But God uses him to deliver his people in an amazing way. Um, and uh, the point of all of these is you see the weaknesses in the deliverer, and it in essence highlights the need for deliverance, and they all point to the true deliverer, the greater, the better, the glorious, the perfect deliverer, Jesus Christ, who also delivers through human weakness. The God-man comes and delivers through human weakness. So that's kind of the story of the book. And it happens over and over. The cycle is repeated. So in chapter 6, what we find is that the people of Israel... Let's read the first verse. You'll see this is the pattern. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so this is what's happened. They've been delivered already. Now they're back. Uh, serving idols, we find out they're serving a veil, and uh, so God puts them under the thumb of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And what they do is they come in, and when the harvests come, these people rush into Israel and they take all the harvest from them. So God chooses a deliverer. The people are desperate. The crowd. God chooses a deliverer, and he pitch, he picks a guy named Gideon. And Gideon is beating the, the the wheat. He is harvesting the wheat, but he's doing it in a wine press because if you're out in public, perhaps the implication is that it would get taken from him. So he's kind of hiding away. And uh, he is uh, harvesting his, his private wheat there or whatever. And an angel shows up and says, hey, Gideon, guess what? God is going to use you and you're going to deliver the people from Midian. You're, they're under Midian, but because of you, they're going to be delivered. This is Gideon's response. I'm in chapter 6 still, verse 15. And he said to him, 
Oh, let's, yeah, for verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I am a weak guy. My whole clan, that's important, your status, your clan, really important. My clan is dissed by everybody else. We're not respected. We're low. We're not, we're the weakest. We're, we're small. We're weak. And, and not only that, but in my family, I'm like least likely to be a deliverer. I am a, I'm not an impressive guy, so I think you've got the wrong guy. And he says, no, it's you. And so Gideon offers this offering and he says, now I'm going to need a sign. So he's weak and he's, he's fearful. We see all right off the bat, I need a sign. And so the angel takes a staff and he touches the offering and it flames up. He's like, whoa. So he's like, okay, this must be real. This must be a real angel. He does that staff and fire thing. This must be real. And so he then, um, he is told to go tear down the altar of Baal. And so he does it. But the text tells us that he does it at night because he's afraid that his family and all the people in the town will see that he tore down their God. So he kind of obeys. Well, he does obey, but he's totally fearful about it. And uh, so that happens. So then he calls these other tribes together to meet down right across from where Midian is, where they're gathered at a stream. He calls them down. And so now he's, he's had a sign and he's called the army down. And so now God's going to call him to deliver, uh, get empower him to deliver Midian, but he's just not sure. So he says, God, I'm going to need another sign. So he concocts this sign, which is not a way to find out, should I marry this person or not? It's not a God's will type of a sign for us today, but it's what he does. So he puts a, a, a wool fleece on the ground, and he says, God, if this is really you, when I wake up in the morning, make the fleece wet with dew, but no dew on the ground around it. God's gracious, condescending to a fearful guy, wants to help him out, so boom, he wakes up and that happens. And Gideon says, now wait a minute, could we do that one more time just to make sure? So the next day, let's do the exact opposite, do around the fleece, the fleece dry, God does that. So God is giving him these promises, these signs, these encouragements. He's coming to this weak guy. And in chapter 7, this is what we, we find him uh, across uh, from Midian ready to attack. Uh, and this first section, the first eight verses, it's really about this. Everyone becomes aware of their weakness. Aware of weakness. That's what God is doing for the people of Israel here. Making them aware of weakness. Verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, 
And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men, and the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. So here's what happens. They're down at this, this uh, camped out across probably a, a couple miles from Midian, uh, the Midianite army, and they're camped out there, and God says this very unusual thing. Very unusual. I'm going to deliver you. And what he says to him is, uh, you have too many people. I mean, this is out of no military strategy book. Where's the military strategy book that says it's, it's better to have much fewer troops than the enemy? But that's what God, what God says. He says, you have too many. Now, chapter 8 tells us that there's 135,000 Midianites and uh, Amalekites. So there's 135,000 of them. They have 32,000, and so he does something that sort of gets rid of 22,000 of them. So God says there is too many. Why is there too many? And this is the key to the whole passage. The sort of interpretive verse to the whole narrative is verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest... Israel boasts over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. This is the problem in Israel. They're self-sufficient. God delivers them out of Egypt, and yet they become satisfied in themselves. They don't see their need for God. And this is why they keep getting into trouble. This is why God sends nations to lovingly correct and discipline. This is God's loving discipline. He sends them so that they will see their need for God and will remember God and stop worshiping idols. They think they are okay. And so he must do something radical because even at 32,000 versus 135,000, Israel is arrogant enough that if they win that war, they'll say praise the Lord and have a high five and kneel at the 50-yard line and do a prayer at the end of the game. But the next day, they're still going to say, man, we beat them. They're going to be trusting in themselves, and they're not going to see how great God was in it. So God's concern is that they see his power, that they're aware of their inabilities and their weaknesses, and that they don't look to other gods, but they look to God himself, that they turn and live lives of worship and honor to the God who has delivered them from slavery and given them this promised land. So his goal is to draw them to himself. His goal is to, in mercy, call them to repentance and give them himself again. And so to accomplish that, he wants them to be wowed and amazed and gripped by the wonder of the power of God, so that Baal looks like nothing but a statue, and God is all-powerful in their eyes, so that they trust Him and not themselves. He's trying to root out of them self-sufficiency. He's trying to destroy this sense of, look what we've done for ourselves. Look what our own hand has done. He wants them to see His hand. And experiences. So he says, you have too many. So he says, anybody who's afraid, go home. This wasn't a random thing. This is Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20, verse 8 says that at a time of war that, that you can say to the people, anyone who's fearful, you know, go home and don't participate in the war. It says, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. 
So he's saying, if you've got a fearful guy, don't send him into battle if he's trembling and scared about it, because what's going to happen is that spreads like, that, that, that spreads like a virus, that fear does. I've seen that. His fear is contagious. It spreads. You see that in groups of God's people. We've seen that in our own church. It can happen. Somebody's fearful and there's just a spread and there's unbelief instead of belief at times. I can be subject to that. So they don't want people going into war and you get in there and, and you know, after the first, I was going to say after the first shot is fired, but after the first spear is thrown or clubbed or whatever they're doing at this time, uh, a- after the first thing, a guy gets scared and starts running and a guy on the battle line looks around and everybody's running and what's he going to do? Well, he wasn't afraid until everybody left. Now he's afraid. So then all the troops will leave. So you don't want that to happen. So get the fearful ones out. And that's what he does. 22,000 of them. Two-thirds leave. This is not looking good. For, I mean, if you're, you're already having to do fleece signs and stuff, so you're already not the most confident uh, leader and confident in God. And so that's what happens. So the Lord says to Gideon, verse 4, the people are still too many. Are you kidding me? This is 10,000 versus 135,000. Yet the the military deduction, you know, the, the, the military, the defense cutbacks aren't sufficient. We've got to cut back some more. So here's what we're going to do. He says, let's get everybody to come down. They're thirsty. Let's get a drink of water. And uh, the Lord's going to uh, call the crops, uh, call the troops a little bit more. So he says, uh, everybody get a drink of water. And he says, all of those who knelt down to drink in the spring, send them home. That was 9,700 of the 10,000. Those who lapped up water like a dog in their hands. So I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I think somebody's down drinking like out of the water. That's the kneel. And I think somebody else is going like this. And then doing the dog thing. That was certainly a dignified physical illustration. But doing the dog thing. And uh, so uh, that is 300 people. So go with them. Go with the 300 lappers is what he says. Now, there I, I didn't realize this. I actually haven't heard this passage preached on too much at all. But in my study, what I realized was that there's like a lot of people that leverage that as a significant point. I had no idea. But they say like, well, what was happening was those who were kneeling down they weren't strong and wise soldiers because they're just thinking about drinking and looking. And those who lap it up, they're like looking around. And, you know, they're alert. They're so, that's the kind of soldier you want. Well, A, the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that their drinking style is what caused them to be called. And it's really just the opposite. He doesn't want strong people. He doesn't want, he's not saying, give me the really alert. Now, probably the Midianites are a couple of miles away from them. So really, that deal right there, that's not like, hey, I'm looking out miles ahead. That's not really even necessary. We can bend down for 10 seconds and slurp some water. What he's trying to do is say, he's trying to get it as small a number as possible. So that's why he picks the lappers. The, verse 2 is the key, not who's lapping. Verse 2 is the key. You have too many people because... They will say, my own hand has saved me. Now, if we get down to 300 guys, there's nobody who's saying 300 beat 135,000. That was really good, 300, uh, you know, really strong soldiers. Nobody's saying that. If you win, you're saying, this is a miracle. This is an absolute miracle. And so he calls it down to that point. One, uh, one commentator uh, 
Dale Davis wrote about this verse, the whole theme, that verse number two. He says, in other words, because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust in their proven methods, to credit their own contributions, to think well of their cleverness, Yahweh, that's the uh, Hebrew Old Testament name for God, Yahweh frequently insists that his people be reduced to utter helplessness so that they must recognize that their deliverance can only be chalked up to Yahweh's power and mercy. That's what's going on here. The, the, the lapping mechanism is, is secondary. What's going on here is God wants his power and mercy on display. He wants to make it so clear in the people of God's heart that you are weak. 300 is weak compared to 135,000. You are weak but God's hand delivered you. That's what this is all about. So they're aware of God's weakness. Next, they become aware of God's power. Aware of God's power, Gideon becomes aware of God's power. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Verse 10. But, he's speaking to Gideon, but if you are afraid like you have been the whole time so far, basically. If you are afraid, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands of all, the, of all of them in empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also, the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So what, what, how does, what does God do here? He reveals his power, really, to Gideon. God graciously acts to convince Gideon of his, of his power. I, I think this is a beautiful picture of the heart of God, especially for those of us who think that God is short-tempered and capricious and sort of just ready to slap somebody around who's getting on his nerves. Look what he does, verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise and go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. He's saying, look, Gideon, you've won the battle, so just go on down and win. But, verse 10, if you are afraid. If you're afraid, I'm really mad at you. No, if you are afraid, go down 
down to the camp with Pura, your servant. You'll hear what they say, and then you'll be strengthened. So God is willing to take a fearful man, a weak man, an uncertain man, and come alongside him. This is grace, because he could have said, are you kidding me? We, we did the burning of the offering. I graciously did the fleece thing twice. And so, you know what? I'm done with you. God could have righteously said, I'm not going to, I've demonstrated myself to you multiple times, delivered you from Egypt. I'm faithful. I've been nothing but faithful. And you don't trust me? I'm done with you. God could have righteously done that. That's not unrighteous. Gideon is not trusting a faithful God who's given him every reason to trust him. But what he does is he says, if you lack strength, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to build your faith. And so what happens is a spectacular work of God. It could never be an accident. He walks down. He says, go down and you're going to overhear something. He walks down and two Midianite soldiers are talking. And he overhears them. And what is so ironic here is that the Midianites have more faith in God than than Gideon does. But he hears what they say. What do they say? Well, I had this dream. One guy says, I had a dream. And a loaf of barley bread comes rolling in to, to, uh, to the camp and knocks over my tent. I think it's a wonderful illustration because I think Gideon's about as intimidating as a loaf of bread. I mean, that's my picture is that, and Wonder Bread at that, or, uh, you know, you just got this Wonder Bread rolling down. I mean, I know it's the wrong bread. That's a loose, loose exegesis there, but you got it running down and knocking over the tent. And the, and the other guy says, excuse me, the other guy says, that's Gideon. That means something inconsequential is going to come and defeat us. And what he actually says is amazing. Uh, His interpretation is verse 14. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. The soldier knows what God's going to do. And that convinces Gideon. God takes the words of uh, this unbeliever and convinces him that, yes, that is what he's going to do, that he sees his power. He's been aware of limitations, but now he sees the power of, of God. And notice how he responds. This is so powerful. Verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. That's what God's been after the whole time. Gideon's heart. Gideon's faith. He's patient with Gideon because he wants his people to worship, to know him, to love him. Why is Midian there oppressing them in the first place? Because God loves them. And God wants them not to sell themselves out to idols. God wants them to know him and enjoy the provision that he's provided in the land. And so Gideon gets it, and he worships. He worships. This is how God works. God will strip us of our perceived strength and show us his hand so that we trust. It's not being evil or harsh. He will strip us of our perceived strength so that we meet and encounter him. Because what's better than that? I mean, the result of this is what's better, worshiping a statue or knowing the living God? And so he he strips away to do that. Gideon is confident in God's strength, and he, he, uh, he comes back with a battle plan. Look at this man. Now he's a man of faith. Now he's, he's seeing the power of God. That's what changed him. Verse 15, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He's not relying on his strength. He's gone from 32,000 to 300. But in that, uh, in that cut, and now this troop discrepancy, which is absurd, now he's confident in God. 
Now he sees God's strength and he has faith that God is going to have to do this in human weakness because it is impossible. The third section really is, is the theme, I think. God displays his power through human weakness. The first section, God makes them aware of their weakness by putting them in a position, stripping away human strength, human resources. Then God reveals his power. Miraculously, he hears this testimony, and he sees the power of God and worships. Point three, God displays. Now he's going to display his power through human weakness. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, remember he has 300, but he divided them into groups of three. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the 300 companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah. As far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Bara and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Baraha and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. It's, it's just a great, great historical account of this war. They, they separate around the troops, and so it's going to appear like perhaps they have more than they do. They, they do it at the right time. The shift is being changed. They kind of were a third on shift, so a third have come off shift and a third are going on shift to watch at night. So you may have some guys coming into their tents, going to sleep, some other guys dragging, just coming out. So it's at that key time, and what they do is they gather around. All they bring to battle is a trumpet, a jar, a jar, an earthen jar, a jar and a torch. That's what they bring. And they come and they blow their trumpets and they break their torches, uh, they break their uh, jars, their earthen jars, and they shout this phrase, for the Lord, a sword for the Lord, and for Gideon. And what happens is the people, in essence, and we don't get a real clear explanation of exactly how it happens, but they turn on each other. So I don't know if they're waking up and coming out of the tents, but they just start stabbing their own comrades and killing one another. And and that happens because of the Lord. That's what's really key here. It wasn't just like everybody, this was a great plan, everybody was really scared. The the key is that the Lord did this. That's that's what the the passage tells us, that the, the Lord is the one who caused them to turn on one another. And they then chase them, and Ephraim catches a couple of their princes down the way and beheads them, and they defeat Midian. It's, a, it's an amazing story. The, the whole point is that these 300 would say, look, God rescued us. God rescued us. We were as ill-equipped as possible. 
a trumpet. What kind of weapon is that? I've actually heard some sixth graders learning trumpet, and it is kind of a weapon in that sense. But, <laughs> but uh, what kind of physical weapon in war is that? Not just towards your ears. But what kind of weapon is that? What kind of weapon is a jar? Crash. And a, and, and a torch. And it appears that they never pulled the sword, that the guys just they chased them. And then down the way, they got him. The point is, for 300 men to come back and tell the story, all we did was blow a horn. What happened? They chased, we killed them. It says in the next chapter, 120,000 of them died. How did you kill 120,000 of them? We blew a horn. The whole point is, the horn blowers defeat the Midianites because of the power of God. 300 say, I was there. I crashed the jar. I held the torch and God saved us. And everyone else, their story is, I wasn't even there and God delivered me. How about that? I was scared to death and went home and God delivered me. The whole story is the fearful, those who were picked, those who weren't picked, God did the deliverance. And we see in a passage like this the truth that human weakness in this story, human weakness becomes a platform for the power of God. And that's a truth for every believer, that human weakness is a platform for the power of God. We see it in Gideon, and Gideon really points to a greater deliverer. Gideon really points and gives anticipation for the true deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose power, the power of God, is demonstrated in the life of the God-man through human weakness. I mean, think about that. Philippians 2 says this, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is Paul saying? God humbled himself in Jesus, the God-man. Jesus humbled himself to the ultimate place, to death on a cross, the despised death of the innocent man dying the death of a cursed person, even though he was innocent. That's as low as you can get. That human weakness, but God exalted him. The story of Jesus is that God becomes a man and does not come with great fanfare. We'll talk about that in December, but you know the story. That Jesus is born to a marginalized couple a couple who is likely rejected and judged because she's pregnant and not married. And so it's scandal, in scandalous circumstances, for those who don't know the truth, it's scandalous. It's not in reality. But for those who don't know the truth, scandalous circumstances, that he's born uh, not with uh, great fanfare that everyone knew. I mean, the shepherds get some fanfare, but not everybody does. And he's born among animals, and a few people come and acknowledge him. And worship him. There's nothing that there's no power to that. All the songs about away in a manger, no crib for. It's not about glory and strength. It's about weakness. It's about weakness, and he lives a life. And as he comes into ministry, the Lord Jesus, he experiences opposition and rejection. A position of weakness in him, though he displays the power of God through healing and teaching. Yet he is resisted and rejected, and ultimately he dies on a cross as a sacrifice in his body, taking our sins, as Pete read about during communion, taking our sins upon himself. That is weakness. It is, it is power that he chose not to use. He could have judged his executioners with just a word. He could have taken their life just like he gave them life to begin with. And yet he does not judge and kill. He sacrifices himself in human weakness. 
His incarnation is weakness. His atonement is weakness. But God, through weakness, demonstrates his power because he raises him on the third day, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of the devil, defeating the power of death. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that he exalts him and bestows upon him the name above every name. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He judges and rules the nations from a throne. And one day, every person, whether they believed or didn't believe in this life, will kneel before that name and confess that that Jesus, the one who came in weakness, has returned in power and will return and will rule eternally in glorious power. Everyone will see it. But not everybody saw it at first. That salvation that God takes human weakness through the God-man and displays his power. And it confounds the world. That's not only how you're converted. Listen, that's how you grow as a Christian as well. That's not just how we first are born again. But as, as I read the Bible and as I read life, my conviction from the Scripture and my experience in my life line up. Growth comes through weakness and difficulty. And God will orchestrate those in our lives to bring us at times to weakness so that he can display his power. Problem is, we don't like weakness. I don't know about you, but I'm allergic to weakness. I break out in hives just thinking about it. I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. Now, when I say weakness here, I'm not talking about just like jello and, you know, like a, really a wimpy person. I'm not saying I hey, wimps for Jesus, so we're not glorifying doormats here. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. So, like, be really holy and, and look pale and drawn. And, I mean, if you're sick and that's the way you are, well, that, I'm not mocking you. But I'm, not, I'm saying don't, don't create that persona. Like, let's all, let's all just do whatever we can. Uh, you know, to be as physically weak as possible, unless God's orchestrated that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about places in life where there's limitations. Stuff that happens to you that you can't do anything about. Places where you feel overwhelmed. That's what I'm talking about. Where are you weak today? Because you know you are weak. And if you be the person here who says, well, I'm not weak, uh, Check in with us in another year or two because it's coming. God loves you enough. Your, your weakness will be revealed. So where are you weak? What are you feeling today? Maybe it's mental weakness. Maybe it's mental. Maybe you just think, man, my, my mind, I just, especially for those of us who are aging, I, I'm not in the category of old yet, but mentally, I mean, seriously, I, this is going to sound like a joke, but over the, I've realized over the last year, I think every day I have this conversation with someone. Uh, if I've told you this before, just stop me. And why am I doing that? Because my kids can finish my sentences, and not because they're prophetic, but because I told the same story three times before, and on the fourth, they've got it memorized. And so I'm always, I just, my memory is not what it is. I, I, my mind is tired. For those of you, us, for those of us under stress, Man, stress, physical stress, makes you mentally, it, it affects your ability to think and to process. Some of us think, man, I, I just can't understand. I, I, I try to read theology, people in the theology, I just don't really understand. I think I'm just mentally, I'm just sort of weak, you know? I just, I, I don't get certain things. I'm not quick. I'm not creative. I'm not intellectual. I'm kind of dull and it's getting duller as I go on. Physical weakness, stress literally, stress literally weakens and destroys your body. 
So you're under stress, and many of us are. When you're living under stress, it is physically weakening you. And actually, physical stress can, it can kill you. Cause heart disease. I mean, it may do some things beforehand, give you an ulcer. Um, it, it can do all kinds of things, but it can affect your blood pressure, heart. Stress can actually kill you physically. And stress sometimes is God's way of catch, getting our attention to say, maybe I'm stressed because I'm living independently and self-sufficiently, and God's trying to get me to this place to say, God, I am weak. Give me your strength. Maybe there's something relational. You're going today and going, man, I am weak. Relationships, that is a place where God will put his finger on weakness. Some of the greatest weakness I've ever experienced is as a parent. Maybe you can relate to that. So some of us in the room, you go, man, I feel weak. I've got situations, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what to do. I don't know what we should do. I don't want to be too strong. I don't want to be too loose. I don't know. And if you have children as they get older that begin to make choices that you wish they wouldn't, then you feel desperately weak. Because we're not talking about dealing with a two-year-old anymore. So what do I do? Maybe some of you have a spouse that's making choices, that's going a direction that you, you know that's not right. And you're like, I can't change their heart. And you're weak in your marriage. Or some of you have a job where, man, your boss is on you and you go every day. This is great. I love hearing this. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to instantly be aware of my weakness because my boss is going to come and unfairly or fairly critique me. Or some of the rooms, they say, I don't think I can do my job. I, I'm, I'm, over, I'm overwhelmed with my job. That's your weakness. Maybe your vocation is a mom. You've got young kids. And you're going, man, they are going to drive me crazy. I am weak. Who gave you those kids and who gave you that weakness? I'm not saying it's easy. I don't say that lacking compassion. But God wants to meet you with the three ankle biters. <laughs> God wants to meet you with the boss and the job, and may have orchestrated that very job so that you would feel what you feel today and cry out, I need him. God wants to meet you. There's some people in the room, you're going, man, I, I'm sitting, I've been in pain the whole meeting. There's people in this room that are in physical pain. You've been in pain the whole sermon. You're going, that is my weakness. God is, I, I pray for healing. But God, I pray he heals you too. He will, for sure, eternally, guaranteed. I pray he heals you before then. But if he didn't, I'm confident, if he doesn't, he wants to use that weakness so that you experience his strength. And he even wants to work a contentedness in weakness. That's what Paul says, I'm content in my weaknesses. What is that? So he wants to build that in you. He wants to take your weakness, your, your relationship with your child, your relationship with your spouse, if that's weakness, <clears throat> your relationship with your job, your finances. I am weak financially, you say. God wants to take that, and that's the very place he wants to show up. God's opposed to me. I've got a marriage problem. God's opposed to me. My job's going well. God's going bad. My, my, God's opposed to me. My finances are going bad. No, God is for you, and he wants to meet you in that weakness. So what is your weakness today? It's whatever overwhelms you. It's whatever overwhelms you. It might be a point of sin. Are you talking about sin or weakness? The story talks about both. Gideon's sin is fear. The people's sin is idolatry. Gideon has to go tear down the Baal, and everybody's mad about that. They're not saying, praise God, thanks for leading us in repentance. They're mad about that. So these people are sinning. 
And then there's also circumstantial things. Having 30 people versus 135,000, that's not a sin issue. That's just a circumstantial weakness. So we see circumstantial weaknesses. We see weakness, which could be his own sin, but could be his constitution. He could just be a guy who... You know, it's just sort of timid by nature. That's not always a sin thing. That's your wiring. Some people are a little bit more like that. So it could be his, it's, it's his background. He can't help that he comes from a, 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 a clan that's weak. So it's his background. It could be his personality. It's his sin. He's not trusting God. All those. Those are all weaknesses. We don't, we have to parse it all, I think. It's all, it's all in the category of weakness. But on the sin part, God comes to them and it, he doesn't say the words, I repent, but he really does. God comes to him and shows him his power and he worships. That's an act of repentance. He, he went from Baal to Yahweh. There's an act of, he repents. He turns from his sin and he goes to them and he says, Get up. We're, we can take these people. <clears throat> he goes to his fellow warriors and he says, we got this thing. What is that? That's faith. He's moved from fear to faith. He's repented. So I, it's not one or the other. It's all the above. God wants to work. If you're trapped in sin, guess what? God wants to come and rescue you and show you the delivering power of Jesus Christ and empower you to turn from your sin. That's going to glorify the power of God because you can say, I never do that on my own. If you're in a troubled situation, God wants to deliver you from your weakness, or he wants to give you strength in your weakness to accomplish his purposes. It's not a bother. It's not a hassle. We shouldn't be allergic or resistant. We should embrace it, because that's where we meet God. That's where we meet God. How does that apply to us as a church? This, thanks for sharing this, Craig, but I have no idea what this has to do with us ever building a building a couple miles from here. Glad you asked. Um, I mentioned to you a while back <clears throat> that uh, the pastors we were joining different community groups this fall. Uh, I didn't tell you where we ever landed. <clears throat> I made it a secret. But um, uh, my wife and I, <clears throat> excuse me, my wife Ginger and I have been in a group in McKinney that's led by Chris Vogelsang. So he is a great community group leader. I'm glad to be in his group. So this is how he opened the meeting this last Wednesday. He said, we're going to go around the room. And you get, you can only share one word, which, yeah, like everybody obeyed that, but you can only share one word that describes your condition walking into the meeting. Fascinating. Most people said stress, by the way. So uh, you can give one word. And so you went around and you said where you were. How are you doing in one word? It's a great opening exercise. And I was thinking about if I were to gather with pastors from other churches and we could sit around and say, okay, I'll go around and in one word describe your church right now. How would you describe it? Here'd be my word. Weak. That'd be my word. Weak. If I, if I had to describe, given our calling, I, I would say weak. I hope it's okay if I could be frank for just a minute. Um, I've tried to be frank the whole time, but um, this church has been going for eight years. In the last one year, we've had more challenge I've had more challenge you have. We've had more challenge than in the previous seven years combined. It's been a difficult year for us as a church. We have experienced some conflicts, some disagreements. And if you're new here, these all played out publicly. There wasn't some kind of backroom disagreement. There may have been that I don't know about. But uh, these, these were discussed in living rooms throughout the church um, and in family meetings and uh, so if you've been around, you know, you know the various things. So we, we have had disagreements and a hard year, a really hard year. Um, 
we did prepare for the square this time last year and had no idea what was going to happen the next year. Or I may have titled it Prepare for Despair. You know, uh, so it's been, it's been that, that, kind, that kind of a year. Sometimes you've got to laugh to keep from crying. So let me go back and be serious. So it's been hard. Here's what's really been hard. If you have been a part of the church very long, you, I can almost guarantee, have said goodbye to a friend in the last year. Some of you have said goodbye to multiple friends. Some of you have said goodbye to your closest friends. And you know what happens when you labor with someone and then, then they leave for various reasons. We've had people leave for jobs. We've had people leave the country for jobs. Uh, we've had people leave the church and go to a church down the street. So we have all kinds of things, people, all kinds of reasons. Um, I'm not commenting on the reasons. I'm commenting on the effect. So when you have several good friends and one of them leaves, it's different. And you know what you feel like? You feel weak. You feel, hey, the group's not what it was. No offense to new people who are here. If you're new, you're great. We just don't know you yet. We're assuming you're great. We just don't know you yet. And so when you build with someone for a while, you feel that loss. And that's why in September we did a reset of community. We said we're going to reboot. We're going to reset. We pray that things settle. We pray that we heal. We pray that we mend. We pray that we grow together. But you know what? When you're healing or mending, you're weak. You talk to somebody who just had a major surgery, it's great, I'm glad they, whatever was dealt with, whatever your problem was dealt with, but you're weak now, because you're recuperating. And that's why I'd use the word, I think we are, uh, I think we are weak. This is the first year in our eight-year history that the financial team, the finance committee, um, and the elders did not uh, project an increase in revenue and income as we did a budget for the year. We're conservative. So we did every year, we've had every year, we predict more this next year, and every year that's been the case, more. This is the first year we'd said, no, we're not going to predict a lack of faith. No, an observation of weakness in reality. So we'll be surprised. Maybe there'll be a ton more. I pray there will. I pray there's a huge increase in reality, but it's not on the budget. Uh, we have probably more open spaces uh, for various places to volunteer in the church than we've had in the past. I'm not telling you that. We're weak. We're just weak. I mean, that, that's just the honest truth. There, there's a weakness, and I don't like weakness. Some of the things I'm saying, I don't, yeah, I want to be turning people away. Volunteer, no, we got that covered. I, I'd like to be turning people away, handing out money to ministries by the droves, because we can't even spend what we've got, so we're giving it all over the world. That seems like strength. I'd be like, no, nobody's ever left. Nobody's ever left. We've ne- That's what I want. That's what you want. But the reality is sometimes, well, we are weak. And as the guy who is serving as the lead pastor, uh, the last year has made me very aware of my own limitations. So I feel personally weak. I, I mean, I am aware. I'm not going to give you all the details. We don't have time for that, but... Uh, the categories are, I'm very aware, I need to grow as a leader. I just see these areas in my life. I need to grow as a leader. I need to grow as a pastor caring for people. And it's just been a lot clearer to me in the last year. I need to grow as someone who disciples leaders, who pours into leaders and raises them. I I mean, I really do need to grow. And and I see my need uh, to mature. I see my need to mature as a husband and as a father. Uh, this last year, last six months has been interesting in our family because we've had half our kids, we have four, we've had two of our kids uh, leave our house, one for marriage, and one's more of a temporary leaving, uh, I, I, I figure, but uh, one to go to college. 
So when, if you've ever hit that stage of life when your kids begin to move out, you just evaluate and reflect. So it's reflecting on ah, what I could have done, should have, would have, could have, should have. And I'm not, I'm not drowning in that. Jesus loves me and I know that, okay? But still, you just look at that sort of stuff. It's different seasons in your life. And I go, man, I'm, I'm weak. Good thing God's their Savior because he's going to see them through. That's very good. I'm weak as a friend. I'm, I'm aware in some relationships. I'm not a, I haven't been the friend God calls me to be. I, I feel weak as a witness. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. The reason we're studying the book of Acts is for me. I, I get up here every Sunday and I preach to myself, and thanks for coming and listening in. But we're studying Acts because I'm going, come on, Lord, help me in my witness. Help me in my heart for the lost, Lord. So someone has commented to me that I was particularly recently in a sermon very animated on a point. And I told them I was very animated because I was preaching to me. I really wasn't aware of who else was in the room at that moment. I'm saying, Lord, by your grace, your grace calls me forward in this area. So I'm not having a breakdown, don't worry. But I, I am just aware of this weakness in my life. I, I was meeting with the guys on the team yesterday, and I told them, I said, look, tomorrow I'm going to stand in the pulpit and say I'm weak, and we're talking about some specific areas. I said, I'm going to tell the church that I'm weak, and I know that's the right answer, but I'm not giving the Sunday school answer. That is absolutely how I feel. And so uh, last week we did something we haven't done before. Uh, the, uh, we, uh, the pastors and then some other people in the church were involved in this as well. But the pastors went over to Frisco Square, and we were putting together a video, and so there was a film crew videoing us. And so we're, we're doing all these kind of things. I don't know how it'll look, but we're like doing this kind of walk down the square deal. So we're doing these walks and we're talking. Uh, these are professionals, so I'm sure it'll be great. But we're talking in front of the sign and, and I'm just walking around. We're, we're under this sign, Frisco Square and, and uh, Church Street. So we're like under this sign, capturing the moment. We're talking and, and at one point I'm there casting vision and I'm going, what are we doing? Are we, God, are we up for this? I said, Lord, am I up for it? Can I, can I, Lord, really, could I lead our church? I'm called with the elders and with the other leaders in the church, but I'm the guy here talking. Uh, do, can I lead our church into something like this? Do we have the resources? Do we have the people? Do we have the, Lord, we are small. I mean, seriously, are we going to be in, the place that, in, a, in a spot that has potentially tremendous influence into a city by virtue of the relationships that will be there and the location that will be there. But Lord, do we have those kind of relationships to be there? Are we supposed to be there? I thought this too. Lord, we've got some, there's some tired people in our church. Weak. And so we are, we are weak. I am weak. The pastors are weak. I've given you some of the other characteristics of weakness. And so I was like, Lord, I didn't say all this on the camera. <laughs> I was, so um, the video may look very positive, but th this is some of what I was thinking in the day. Um, and I'm thinking, Lord, what, I, I, I am weak. And I say, I, I think looking at me, looking at us, Lord, are we qualified to be on this kind of mission? And it occurs to me that weakness is qualification. That weakness is the qualifying factor. Because everybody's weak. Just not everybody knows their weak. And God wants to work through weak people. God does not work through people who are impressed with themselves. God does not work through people who will then turn and say, here's the story, look what we did. 
God is jealous for his glory. We read that last week, Isaiah 42. So God will always orchestrate the circumstances so that if his people listen to him and pray and follow him, he will not share his glory with another, with an idol, the scripture says. God is jealous for his glory because he is is eminently glorious. And so God wants to work in each of our lives where he brings us to a place where we say, Lord, I'm limited. Help me. Lord, I'm sinful. Give me grace to repent. Lord, I'm ignorant. Instruct me from your word. Lord, I need help. And so I go to you and I go to those around me who know you and I say, help me. God wants us to be in that place so that we are in a place we are platformed for his power through weakness. We are platformed for his help through his, through his grace. He gives his grace to humble, weak people. So we pray for his power. We look to him for faith. See, I think what, here's what really God's saying to us as a church. I think he's saying, look, I've given you a unique opportunity I've given you an opportunity for mission where I'm going to really do something. But before I get you over there, here's what I want you to see. Here's all you have in the battle. You got a trumpet and you got a jar and you got a torch. And that's not going to defeat anybody. If you were looking at your resources, yes, you don't have it. Excellent. But I have all power. And so I will reach the loss through you, and I will work in your marriage, and I will work in your child's life, and I will work on your job, and I will work to either heal you or to sustain you in your suffering. And I will work through you in all of these various weaknesses and all of the places we can get entrapped by sin if we see our weakness, we see his power, and we return in worship as opposed to continuing in self-sufficiency and in our own strength. First step is to embrace weakness, move towards the Lord, move towards one another, move towards his word, move by his spirit, see his strength, realize that God demonstrates his power through human weakness, and then act in faith to do what he tells us to do. There's a big step of faith there. Somebody had to show up out there with the jar and the trumpet, and I guarantee you somebody's thinking, really? Getting it seriously? Okay. I mean... Everybody at some point said, really, that? Yeah, that. Human weakness, so that God gets all of the glory. God delights to fulfill his mission through weak people. We are weak people. And by the grace of God, when we see that, and when we sincerely embrace that, we are postured for God to do glorious things in our lives and in our church. And that's what we're focusing on in this season. Salvation is the story of God's power through human weakness. Sanctification is the story of God's power through human weakness. External mission and evangelism is the story of God's power through human weakness. So let's embrace our weaknesses and let's cry out for his power. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.